This episode is brought to you by Fabulous. Fabulous is the habit-changing app that gives you the tools and skills you need to help you break free of negative habits and build new healthy ones that stick. Get 25% off Fabulous Premium by going to thefab.co slash no meat. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Doug, are you, uh, have you gone into the, the winter post-NFL season depression now that you don't know what to do with yourself on Sundays anymore? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I watch a lot of football. So. <laughs> I, the Super Bowl was literally the first game I've watched the entire season. I watched about five minutes of a couple of Carolina Panthers games, and mm-hmm. I just can't pay attention anymore. I don't know. I got into soccer, and... Even that, I'm, I'm not a good. I just can't religiously watch the, anything for an hour or two anymore. Uh, but yeah, I, man, I'm so far away from American football these days. But the Super Bowl's still fun time. Yeah, I watched. I watched. Uh, I watched three games this year, if you include the Super Bowl, two uh, Bills games, some critical Bills games, because Katie's family <laughs> okay. is big Bills fans. Ah, so, okay. Uh, did were that? You, were you up there? Or you just did that? Did that down? Uh, one time, did it over home. Christmas break. Um, we were in California with her family, so we watched Bill's game then. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bills and then, are kind of good again, right? Yeah, they were. I mean, they were in the playoffs and had a yeah. heartbreak of an end of a season in oh, overtime. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was sad. That is sad. <laughs> I, I remember the Bills, <laughs> and, the, Bills and the Cowboys. <laughs> That's what I remember from the night. Oh yeah, oh yeah, back from childhood, they were yeah. dominant. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, we, you know, I, we make fun, I guess, but uh, Super Bowls. I, I like Super Bowl. I'm not going to put it up there with New Year's or Black Friday as my favorite holidays, but it's it's, <laughs> it's still a good one. Uh, it's one where, I don't know, for whatever reason, I like to make the Super Bowl food, like make a couple things, mm-hmm. and then, you know, we pretend like we're going to watch the game and be all excited about it, and we and we do for a little while, and then eventually we we forget it or whatever, do something else. But, uh, but this year, actually, my power went out in the fi- during the final drive of the game. No way. Yeah, and I, like, I actually, I actually watched the whole thing. And the final, I think there was less than two minutes left, and it was the, the Rams had the ball, and it looked like they were going to win, but they hadn't. And then my power went out, and it was out for like six hours. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's really funny. I, I did turn on my phone, and I got to see the the post game interviews, but missed the missed the drama. That was, but anyway, that was yeah, that was the same part. So I my uh, I went for the third year in a row. Went to a friend's house, um, who puts it on a big screen outside, mm-hmm. and uh, invites a couple guys over, and has a big fire and. Uh, and hangout session, and um, uh, it's always a really good time. I, I, I love that tradition, and I hope we keep it alive. But this year was kind of funny because um, we all just kind of brought a couple beers because that's all, you know, we just kind of brought, like, a couple beers to drink. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and by the by the final drive, when everything was super exciting, and we all kind of looked at each other and, like, does anybody have any more beer? <laughs> no, no one had any other beer. It was just kind of a sign of how... How old yeah. I'm getting and boring I'm getting that like, <laughs> <laughs> that, right? That you allow the beer to run out. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, but you know that means people must have been having a good time if they, if the beer was gone. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah we'll Doesn't happen. That. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it it was a really good time. I, I, I don't know. It's fun. the Super Bowl. It just brings out just a lot of like positive energy. I guess unless yeah. your team loses, but it's considering I, I right. very rarely have a any investment in who wins. It's just a good time. Yeah, I have investment in in rooting for safeties so that my uh, my pool block squares will uh, will have some chance of coming in because that that to me always the Super Bowl devolves into that. I started out like having a team and then 
midway through the first quarter, I'm done rooting for teams. I'm just rooting for crazy circumstances so that somehow, you know, my 5-2 will turn out to be a winner. Uh, <laughs> and, and again, this year did not. But yeah. always fun. Um, and the, the were there any? Usually, there's like some kind of big vegan plant based ad that we that we talk about. But I don't know if there was this year. You know, the halftime show was was a good one. I thought, as much as I'm not into hip hop mm-hmm. music, never like never just was growing up. It just was not. It was just not on my radar. I knew about it, but it, I didn't care about it. Uh, but those the songs. I mean, they're picking obviously the most mainstream songs of all. But uh, kind of reminded me of of high school, and I liked it. Yeah, you know, there's uh, you know, they have for the last several years. It seems like they've been going like with the Stones and Prince and some kind of, I don't know, older. Uh, I mean, I guess Prince and the Stones. <laughs> <like>. <laughs> I saw I saw a joke of I, someone put put on Twitter. I forget what it was about how how all these people our age were saying you know like wow like finally like instead of instead of having the rolling stones and all these ancient bands they're they're finally like playing something cool and then it was like and then everyone realized that it was just that we'd gotten older <laughs> like, we've gotten old enough to appreciate the super bowl halftime act now oh that's funny yeah. <laughs> it's true it's true yeah i think it is anyway well um, we have a great interview today so let's uh quote the chit chat oh one, you got more i got, right, I got one up? quick relevant tidbit okay um plant you carly bodrug who we had on last I guess it was last episode, right? Yep. Uh, her book, Super Smash Hit, like has turned out to be far, far exceeding her expectations and ours and the publishers and everybody. And it's just, uh, this morning it was like number 15 of all books on Amazon. Uh, it's You, you uh, can't even get it on Amazon anymore, like until it'll be delivered way late. Oh. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you want that, go to a, go to an independent store to get it. But the reason I'm bringing it up is uh, that we made we made her buffalo chicken. And it was so delicious. We made it for Super Bowl. And I actually made it. It was like her KFC Nashville kind. Not not chicken, of course. It's tofu. Um, but she had, you know, copied that recipe and had this technique with where you freeze the tofu and then you thaw it and all this. I actually didn't do that. I just did it regular. But then last night I did the frozen version because it was so good that I wanted to try the real thing. Uh, but anyway, she's got that buffalo chicken recipe in her book, Plant You. Um, but we made that and we made guacamole. And I think I made one other. We made one other thing. Oh, no, we were going to have Beyond Burgers, but nobody was, was hungry, so we didn't. But uh, anyway, made made Super Bowl food. That's great. Well, and congratulations to, uh, on that book success. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, really. I'm very excited for her. It's, and it's too bad they're running out of copies, but it happens. Yep. Hard to estimate. Okay, on to our guest. Yes. Dr. Joel Furman. Dr. Joel um, Furman. Everybody needs, knows, knows Dr. Yeah. Furman. I think so. I think he needs a little introduction. Uh, he, for me, he's like a significant one of the vegan doctors because he was kind of my first one. Like for the first, I don't know, probably first three or four years of being vegan, I like I was into like real food, whole food. I had read Michael Pollan stuff uh, when I went vegetarian and then vegan, but I hadn't, and like Brendan Brazier, of course, but I hadn't gotten into any of the vegan doctors or the you know high nutrient eating. Gregor wasn't really popular then i mean he was doing his thing but he just hadn't grown to the level he had yet um and like you know dr campbell dr eschelstein i liked their stuff but but forks over knives was not my pathway in so somehow that never really resonated but uh but i read Furman's book super immunity which was not his most popular book his most popular one was eat to live uh which was more like his diet book his lose lose weight with a plant-based diet book 
Uh, but I thought Super Immunity was so good. It taught me about the G-bombs idea, which is his his acronym for the foods you should eat every day. I think it's greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, seeds. Um, and it was like the first book that got me thinking outside of just like the I'll eat whole foods and I'll as long as I'm doing that, then I'm fine, which, you know, in many ways is true. But like it gave me this next level to aspire to, to start thinking about working in these like, I don't want to call them superfoods, but like these these most disease protective foods. Um, so, you know, striving to get those in my diet every day. And so like that, for me, that kind of was the first one of these books that I read. And it just opened up a lot of, uh, a lot of, I don't know, a lot of interest in, in that kind of stuff. So, uh, that's why, that's why Furman stuff is always special to me. I think he's very good, very strict diet is not easy to follow to do mm-hmm. it in the, in the, you know, pure true way. But I met so many people on my first book tour, I remember that would come up and say, yeah, I've been eating plant-based and I've lost 30 pounds or 50 pounds or 70 pounds. And it seemed like 80% of those people who's, who had stories like that had done it with Eat to Live, his mm. book. Uh, and I did some Eat to Live myself. I have a blog post about my Eat to Live challenge where I did it for six or seven weeks or something. Uh, again, not easy. And I, I failed a few times at sticking to it. But uh, but yeah, just just good stuff. I would highly recommend reading Firm and Stuff if, if you're into you know this kind of uh, nutrition topics. Great. Well, yes. uh, Matt Tolman is, is doing the interview, so... Uh... With Sit that, back, we just get some popcorn, it. make some buffalo, buffalo uh, tofu, <laughs> and, and enjoy. Perfect. Sounds great. <laughs> well, welcome, Dr. Joel Furman. Thank you so much for joining No Meat Athlete Radio. I could not be more excited to have you here. On a personal note, as I was sharing with you before we clicked record, Um, You had a major role in my own transition to a plant-based diet. I have always enjoyed the kind of nutritarian philosophy, the equation that just makes it so simple, but we'll get into all of that. So let me start by saying thank you so much for for joining and I'll get a little bio here. Um, Although, you know, probably your, your your reputation precedes you with our community and we don't need to get too far into it, but I'll, I'll have to just give some folks a primer that you are a seven-time New York Times best-selling author, author, which is remarkable. Uh, we we got one on the list last year, and it almost killed us. So the fact that you've done it seven times is just outstanding. Of course, you started as a board-certified family physician. You have eleven books in print. Most of our community probably knows you for the Eat to Live bestseller. Uh, now you've updated. For, to eat for life, or I should say it's not updated, but your new book. And I'm really excited to learn more about that. And like I said, most people know you for the nutritarian philosophy that's brought to life in all of those books, Super Immunity, Eat to Live Cookbook, The End of Dieting and The End of Heart Disease. So let me just say it again. Thank you so much for all the work that you do bringing these concepts to life. And thank you for joining us today to to dig in a little deeper into all of this. My pleasure, looking forward to it. So let's start um, at the beginning, if you will, which is something that you've maybe mentioned in your books, but it's been some time since I I read those originals. Um, Where did your journey to a plant-based diet start? If you could just kind of center us, at what point in your career did you say, 
hey, food really matters. I should probably decide, you know, to to uh, to write 11 books on this subject and and kind of overhaul um, America's diet with this nutritarian concept. When did that come about? Well, it was kind of a, a life, a gradual thing that took place over decades. Um, my father was somewhat ill and overweight when I was growing up. So he read a lot of books by Dr. Herbert Shelton from the natural hygiene movement. And he had those books and newsletters in our house when I was a teenager. So I think from the ages of 10 to 10 to 15, we were already switching over to um, almost totally plant-based then. And when I, was a, I was on the world team in figure skating. So I was training as an athlete, you know, maybe, you know, the majority of hours in the day um, I was like my full-time job, you know, more than college and after college. But in any case, the point is that being a serious athlete, we were always trying to have better stamina, never get sick, continue with our continue, the, the training, not being interrupted by illness. So we were already into healthy eating at that point. And that was when I was, you know, in my teenage years, I was quite serious about that and eating very healthfully, you know, through my com um, competitive athlete career. And then, um, I didn't go back to, then I had thought because I hadn't taken the pre-med requirements. I was thinking in the back of my mind, I might want to go to medical school because my passion for nutritional excellence, my awareness that people were committing suicide with food, even in my young 20s. So I had thought about it, but I kind of thought it was too late and I hadn't taken the prerequisites. I kind of gave up and I just was working in my father's shoe business. And then I started dating my dating a woman named a girl named Lisa then who later became my wife and she was actually um, going to medical school and applying to med schools then and I, and I started, started to say to her you know what are you doing that for you just learn how to give people drugs and poisons you know it's not really getting people healthy and then she said well if you're so passionate about all this why don't you go back to medical school and make things different and change the world you know so I so I said well it's too late for me I'm like I'm already like 25 and hadn't taken the prerequisites to college and then so with, with all the, but to make a long story short, I went back, I realized that, you know, um, through her influence too, that I could take the, I could, I went back to Columbia and, and I first went to Rutgers for a few courses. Then I went back to the Columbia pre-med program. And I, then I went to medical school when I was 29 years old with the specific intent of being a doctor to specializing in nutritional medicine. So I actually um, knew what I wanted to do. That's why I went to medical school. Wow, I uh, I did not see that coming. But if I'm not mistaken, um, I believe uh, you also advised Olympic athletes. So that nutritional excellence and that that sports uh, journey has always been a component, probably lesser known. Is that true? That's absolutely true. You know, my I always had a passion for. You know, I trained, into, um, you know, I was a skating coach and trained international competitors. And because of my own injury, where I was on crutches for a year and couldn't compete in the 76 Olympics, uh, you know, I was third in the world in pair skating with my younger sister. Um, but, I, but because of my injury and I, you know, and, and, and also I'm a I became a certified podorthist in my family's footwear business. I made appliances and footwear and shoe orthotics and for the New York City hospital system and the orthopedic clinics. I, and, and to make a long story short, I, I, you know, I got into injury prevention for athletes and, and thinking of how to prevent athletes. So the combination of nutrition and, and training and not getting sick, but also protection with proper alignment and protective equipment and all these things to prevent people from getting hurt. 
um, because so many athletes blow out their, their careers, you know, with just, um, cause you heal faster when you're young, but you do stupid things because of that and you get hurt and, you know, obviously. So yeah, I was involved in the, in a lot with the, when I was younger with the, with the, um, athletic community, including the Olympic ski team and advising, um, Eric Schloppy, who was in the four Olympic games and downhill skiing and a lot of other top athletes, including professional basketball players, um, but yes, yeah, that's been, I've been, did a lot of these, all these things. Well, uh, given the, the subject nature of this podcast, I'm, I'm sure we'll get a little bit into um, the sports nutrition aspect, but I, I want to keep it a little broader for now. Although with that in mind, um, I would love to talk to you a little bit about skiing and what the, uh, uh, what knee replacements look like for these mogul, you know, these these uh, Olympians that we're all watching compete in China right now, and you see what they're doing to their knees, <laughs> and I just like cannot imagine, you know, what what you would um, recommend for for trying to maintain that that kind of uh, sport. Um, but anyway, well, let's. That's what uh, I do actually. I'm I'm 68, and I my favorite thing is to do moguls all day long. <laughs> is that true? Absolutely. Okay, well we have to, I'm we diving have to down the mobile slopes, you know, and I play with them. I some I jump in the air and I and some most of them I just absorb with my knees. But I'm like, I, that's what I love to do is play in the bumps, you know? Yeah. Well, as that's, do I. But honestly, there there's a part of me. So we have an Olympian on our team um, who I think has had like, uh, you know, I don't want to age her, but she's she's in her 30s. Um, and has had like three knee surgeries because of, um, I mean, she was literally doing those, you know, the, the, the 360 flips in the air landing in a patch of moguls. Uh, I don't yeah. remember exactly what that uh, event is called in the Olympics, but it is incredibly impressive and just brutal on your knees. So I have to ask you, what, what is the secret then to, for all those runners out there listening, uh, because, you know, it's the same thing, right? You always hear about marathoners who have to get their, their knees replaced by the time they're 50. Um, what, what is the secret that allows you as you approach your 70th birthday to continue on the moguls like that? I, I really think that it's the diet that, that, that gives you circulation to the joints and prevents the cartilage from being compressed and damaged. And all these people who've damaged their joints as they're age, aging, um, I do think that they've, you know, free radical damage, premature aging of the body, and the, the, joint, um, the joint capsule gets a poor blood supply and you're sticking of the red blood, the, the low formation or the sticking of red blood cells, the stacking like coins prevents oxygenation of tissues adequately. So before you get any kind of heart problems or back problems, you get cartilage problems, knee problems, then back problems, then heart problems. In other words, you're accelerating aging of the joints. It's not just the damage you did through your athletic career. It's the, what you're eating when you're young and the damage is occurring while you're young. And you mm -hmm. eat processed foods and the body spews out and produces more free radicals and the free radical formation, the chronic inflammation in the body just deteriorates cartilage first. So it's, um, I think it's primarily a nutritional issue. I'm sure people can take bad falls and they're twisting and, and twisting and injuries, but it's not the same thing as having an accidental injury and just the mm -hmm. wear and tear you're talking about from using your knees and from you know, from using your knees and from job, from running and, and being in triathlons or marathons. Certainly, obviously, marathons and triathlons are kind of not normal degree of athletics, but any serious competitive athlete is pushing their body to the limit. And so 
certainly we have better cushioned shoes nowadays for, for, for training purposes and also having the right alignment for the foot structure on impact. So making sure, in other words, that you're, you know, you're analyzing the foot for pronation and making sure the foot strike doesn't roll in and you train the person, not only with the cushion in the shoe and with the orthotics in the shoe, but also with the biomechanics and working with that athlete on sand and in soft surfaces so they can hold their foot and build the structure of their foot so their strike is balanced and in, and in the right positions, they're running with their foot in neutral alignment. For some athletes who aren't injury prone, they have great alignment naturally genetically and others of us have more... Um, or irate, more pronation or more abnormal um, strikes and gates where we have, we need training to have that, to have the alignment be perfect where the knee bends over the right, you know, the middle toe and how you don't have the knee turning in from uh, with a pronated strike. So all these things accelerate wear and tear in the joints. So it's a combination of proper balance, symmetrical from one side to the other, right alignment in the feet and the knees and the hips and the back, especially starting with the feet. And of course the right diet to prevent oxidation and a in premature aging of tissues. Okay. I think we'll have to schedule you for a, a second visit to our podcast to go deep into your, <laughs> your philosophies, particularly for all the runners who make up probably a majority of our, of our listeners today. Um, because given your background with uh, uh, orthotics and sports nutrition and everything else, uh, we could go very, very deep. But since you are an expert in other domains, I want to make sure we get to touch on uh, some of those other concerns, um, you know, heart disease, cancer, and the like. So <laughs> um, let me just step back. And, uh, and as we're continuing the get to know you phase, the warm up, if you will, um, you published your, your first book on the nutritarian diet in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the world has changed pretty remarkably over the last two decades. A lot of science has come out. Um, I'm curious if anything stands out to you uh, as, as kind of big ideas that you wish you would have done differently, um, or if you would recreate it from scratch today and and of course, I do recognize that you updated the book in 2011, but, but as a broad high level concept, I'm, I'm curious if you can just speak to what that nutritarian philosophy is really all about and whether or not it holds true and what you would update today. Good question. And first of all, I would just to talk about semantics of language. Um, I don't see myself as advocating a philosophy or because I'm seeing myself as just a purveyor of, of good science and what I do and other people have philosophies and biases and preferences. They're trying to prove certain viewpoints and I have nothing to prove and no, no predetermined bias or agenda. I'm just looking at evidence and going where the preponderance of evidence takes me. So I pride myself on objective analysis of the, and the comprehensiveness at which I've evaluated all the data on the subject. So even when I wrote Eat for Live in 2000, I think it was published in 2003 or 2004, the first edition, um, you know, at that point, I wasn't saying people had to be 100% vegan. I was saying, you know, probably between zero and 10%, maybe around 5% is the sweet spot. 
um, for the amount of animal products and get away with without incurring the risk of disease, maybe 10%, most of, you know, and that I didn't want to emulate a blue zone. I never held up the blue zones as the areas of the world that we're trying to emulate. They're just better than the way Americans are living and live longer than they eat healthier, but they're not designed by science to be the maximum lifespan potential or disease reversal potential of a nutritarian diet. So I designed the nutritarian diet to be the pinnacle of nutritional excellence based on science, not philosophically based. So that people who want this, who want the best, you know, if you don't, you, it's not my niche. You want to do, you appeal to the masses. I remember when I wrote it to live, the, the publisher at that point, Little Brown said to me, we can make this, a, you know, a million book bestseller, you know, if you just would make it a little more lenient and not as strict. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> a lot of people who do that make it less strict to appeal to the masses, but I don't want to do that. I want to, I, I don't want to sell people out who want the most powerful information. They can reverse their illnesses, get back to normal again, or live longer and if they want to, you know, make it more lenient, let them do that. But I shouldn't be doing that. I should be telling people what's most, the best thing they can, the best thing could possibly do. And I said, you know, if I, and, and, and I don't recommend best-selling books because if a book's a bestseller, it's probably not going to be, you know, good science because it's not going to appeal to the masses. It's probably not good. But of course, you know, my books eventually became bestsellers because I was very um, lucky to be exposed on television and have other, you know, and, and eventually the world moved in this direction. I was, and I made a, had a lot of best-selling books, but in those days, back in 2004, Atkins was the best-selling books and meat-heavy books were all in the rage and everybody was eating all these meat-based diets. So, you know, I didn't really want to become a, weren't interested in making a best-selling book. I just wanted to make a book that was accurate and most effective for people's lifespans. And, you know, but in any case, so yes, I, um, you're asking me what, is what could be modified somewhat. And I have to say that the most striking finding in this world of nutritional science in the last decade are like three or four things. One is that actually protein does matter and diets higher in protein are linked to enhanced longevity and better athletic performance and better retaining people's vitality Mental, uh, mental capacity and physical capacity in later life, but only if the protein is plant protein. In other words, what we've seen this remarkable um, science that's come out with, with, a, with corroborated with multiple studies all showing the same thing, that more foods high in plant protein extends human lifespan and that plant-based diets that don't pay attention to the protein content are not ideal for longevity and later life health, which has been shocking because as you can imagine, all those, those sure. diets that have been advocated by the vegan community, like macrobiotic diets or fruitarian diets or, or rice-based diets or potato-based diets, we're finding out that protein does make a difference among plants, but surprisingly, more animal protein has the opposite effect. And we know the science as to why this is occurring nowadays. The, some of the other things that are critically important and different that maybe I didn't um, have all the information back then was that more nuts and seeds in a diet, that more fat is not only not detrimental, but it actually also reduces all-cause all mortality. That diets higher in nuts and seeds are beneficial for longer life. Thirdly, is that the omega-3 index does matter and that one of the weaknesses of plant-based diets is not merely that they're low in B12 and zinc, let's say, two things that plant-based diets maybe don't hit optimal levels of, but also that 
When you're on a plant-based diet, it's even more important to make sure your omega-3 index is elevated, let's say above five, to maintain so you don't have brain shrinkage with aging or increased risk of cognitive impairment. So I think those three things are, the th are what I probably didn't emphasize enough because there wasn't that much literature and research back then 20 years ago as there are to is today. Okay, we're gonna have to schedule a third podcast to dig into all of these topics because longevity probably deserves its own full hour. <laughs> but, but thank you for, for sharing that uh, succinct and yet um, detailed response. There's so much I wanna dig into that. Let's start with the protein piece. I can't help myself. We're gonna throw out the original questions that I wrote and just dig into this because um, protein, I mean, you look at like protein holic, right? Uh, over the last five years, I think you see a lot of um, a lot of luminaries in our space really emphasize how taxing it is for your body to process protein and how the 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 mythological role that protein plays in our society is overblown, and that that even less and less protein is is the key to longevity. You're you're telling us that. That's not true. It's just no, it's true. conflated it's in the sense of animal-based protein is probably driving a lot of that that deleterious effect, and that plant protein is actually um, uh, positively correlated with health span and longevity. Absolutely, it's the evidence now is basically irrefutable that both those things are true. More animal protein leads to more early life death, and actually, recent studies showing the as you cut carbs below 30% to try to get more into ketosis with these paleo keto diets, they have the most highest degree of premature early life deaths. That some of these high animal protein diets are the most dangerous diets. And it's not just one study that showed this. It's we give some, we give data and information more credence when they're when when different research groups from different parts of the world find the same find the same results, you know what I mean? And corroborate each other. And multiple studies corroborating that, that diets higher in animal protein shorten lifespan. Um, on the other hand, while they're looking at animal protein and looking at protein in general, they're also looking at people following plant-based diets more in the lab that are coming up with these studies that follow thousands of people for decades and show hard endpoints like death or cancer or heart attacks. And showing that the plant foods that are high in protein, which basically are greens, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, are the ones that are linked to the most longevity, not grains, rice, potatoes, and fruit. Not that you shouldn't eat fruit, and, and actually, you know, not that these things aren't good for you. It's just that adequate protein, protein adequacy on a plant-based diet is important for being a healthy centenarian. And we're talking about, you know, Beans, you know, or eight or nine grams per half a cup, same as, you know, and, and um, nuts or, you know, hemp seeds are 10 grams of protein per three tablespoons. We're talking here that actually designing a diet so it is protein adequate for the athlete, to, for, for a plant-based athlete, equates with better, better mental and physical performance in later life. All right, everyone, Matt and Doug here, back to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Fabulous. Setting new goals, creating and sticking to healthy habits, building a daily routine you can actually keep. Making these changes should be easy, right? Well, 
If you're not sure how or where to start, then it's time to try Fabulous. Fabulous is offering NMA Radio listeners 25% off Fabulous Premium by going to thefab.co slash no meat. Fabulous is a habit-changing app that gives you the tools and skills you need to feel more productive and fulfilled. They do this by using a holistic approach along with behavioral science that focuses on self-improvement, mental and physical health, mindfulness, and productivity to build a daily routine that works for you. For example, let's say you want better sleep, which is one of of the many things you can choose uh, to focus the app on after you signed in. Fabulous breaks down the goal into daily reminders and triggers, helps you establish the best sleep pattern for your lifestyle. Becoming a Fabulous Premium member gives you access to daily coaching content sessions, unlocks all guided behavioral change programs, and lets you add as many habits as you'd like in your routines. Do you think, uh, will Fabulous help you if your kids only do Instagram and they don't really get any of their homeschool work done and you're trying (laughs) to get them to actually do stuff? You know, it would. I really do think (laughs) it would because social media and uh, productivity is one of the key key things you you can focus on with the Fabulous app. Ah, very good. And, and you know about that because you were a former social media addict? <laughs> I was. And and not anymore. Not as much anymore. <laughs> Working <Very> nice. <laughs> Start building your ideal daily routine today with Fabulous Premium. Get 25% off Fabulous Premium by going to thefab.co slash no meat. That's T-H-E-F-A-B dot C-O slash no meat for 25% off Fabulous Premium. Fabulous. <laughs> premium <laughs> all right with that let's let's get back to the episode so let me ask one more question on protein before we move along um because uh well just to point it uh directly um is there a limit at which point uh there's an indication that protein does have a uh, negative impact on health span even from uh, plant-based sources. I, I know there are limitations to our uh, scientific understandings today, and, and I'm getting pretty um, detailed, but I'm just curious uh, if it seems like a, an unending um, correlation where more plant protein continues to have a better and better effect, or if at some point, you know, there is that element to, you know, just overworking your kidneys and you're not absorbing all that much. You're not utilizing all that much in terms of no. tissue repair. So just okay. curious what, what you know just, about you know, that. There's um, we're talking about whole foods. You can overdo plant protein. If you're taking like isolated soy protein or isolated hemp protein, and you're concentrating protein to a degree, not in natural foods, but there's no, but natural foods like a bean is a mixture of carbohydrate, a little touch of fat and most and protein. It's let's say 30% protein. If you consider the 10% of the bean is resistant starch, the 70% of starch in the bean now is um, really 60%. So that makes the protein content instead of being 30%, it's closer to 35%. So we're saying you can't you can't eat overdo on protein eating beans. And you you know when you're eating hemp seeds, they're high in protein, but they're they're also you know give you plenty of omega three fatty acids and stuff. So you, it's really almost impossible to overeat protein on plant foods unless you're overeating calories. So we certainly, you know, I always say half of what we eat feeds our body's needs and the other half feeds the needs of our doctors. You know what I mean by that? Obviously it's a joke, but it means that most people are eating so many calories and most people across America are, are hugely overweight. 
right? We have a complete overweight society. So they're e they could be eating too much protein, too much fat and too much carbohydrate, which means they're eating too many calories in general, but they're not overeating protein unless they're overeating food. Now, the, the way you can make a, if, you know, if we're talking about whole natural foods, all natural foods, including intact grains like camut and quinoa and millet have a mixture of a little bit of fat, protein, and carbohydrates. So you're getting a good balance of protein, fat, and carbohydrate in the natural food already. You can't overeat on protein unless you overeat the whole food. And then you know you're getting too many calories in. So you're, you can't push the protein too high unless your diet is not balanced. And so it means that we're supposed to be eating some fruits, some nuts, some greens, some vegetables. And with the variety of foods in a diet also enhances the viability and variety of bacteria in the gut. It's not about any, we, we learned it's not about probiotics taking a lot of good bacteria. It's about having a lot of different fibers and different food, um, different types of foods that the variability, the variety of foods we can eat today is so wide that gives us the ability to push the envelope of human longevity. When I was a kid, you couldn't get wild blueberries and, and microgreens and baby lettuces and all these superfoods we can eat today that really are super. So the answer is it's not a concern to get too much. Um, if you're eating natural foods, you can get too little by making your diet too high in fruit, or let's say too much white rice or white bread. You can't, yeah, as your diet becomes less nutritarian, you're diluting the, the protein content of your diet. But as you know, I want people to eat fruit, you know, too. I want them to, you know, so I'm not talking about, we're talking about having a, a good balanced diet with a lot of different varieties of different types of foods. In that case, you're not going to overdo protein if you eat, if you um, keep yourself lean and don't overdo calories. So let's, let's uh, continue on that thread because, you know, from the literature that I've seen, the one thing that any doctor, any paleo keto or vegan proponent worth their salt. We'll all agree on at least one thing, which is the only uh, truly evidence-based, like resilient theory around longevity is if you decrease calorie intake, right? Along as, uh, so long as you're not pushing into malnutrition territory, right? But, but minimizing uh, calorie intake is the best way to reduce all-cause mortality. In other words, extending longevity. And, and we can talk about fasting and the like, but, but just generally speaking, reducing your intake, your consumption of uh, foods is, is on net <laughs> a good thing. Again, as long as you're getting those key micronutrients. I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that and, and what more you might add to the equation for, for maximizing longevity today. That's right. You have to be, we have to be more specific than that, that generalization, because obviously um, restricting calories. So your IGF one is too low or you're malnourished and not good muscle, muscle and bone mass is not going to be good for brain longevity either. So we're saying here that here's the foundational principle of a nutritarian diet, which I espouse, which is here it is in five words. It's moderate caloric restriction in the context of micronutrient excellence moderate caloric restriction, not excessive caloric restriction. And you moderately caloric restrict just by eating natural foods that are so much fiber and so filling. Like I had a lot for lunch today, I had a big salad with like all types of stuff in it, you know, with soybeans in it 
chickpeas and I had some lentil soup with it and I had some uh, the fruit for dessert, but I, but I couldn't probably get more calories in without feeling overeating. You know, it was hard, you know, and I, I had ran, I ran this morning and I played singles tennis both um, today already. Um, so I, you know, but so I felt like, oh, well, maybe I, you know, I'm not certainly overeating, but I really, it's almost hard to overeat. So the point I'm making right now is moderate caloric restriction means your body fat is low but you're still eating enough calories to maintain excellent musculature, especially as we get age, because we know that as we reduce calories and protein, we protect, we increase longevity by lowering IGF-1 into favorable levels. But if IGF-1 get too low and you restrict calories too much or you restrict protein too much and IGF-1 gets too low, you also less likely to be a healthy centenarian because so there's that sweet spot in the middle of being lean, but still having good musculature and not pushing it, you know, so not just blanketly, the less you eat. So, you know, the less you eat, the better. It's not the less you eat, the better. It's less you eat to a point. And then you've got to use the art here of pitting that right, that perfect sweet spot. And even with nutrients, having the adequate nutrients means not, you want to get micronutrient adequacy and a good variety, but you don't want to have excess of certain nutrients that you could get, that you weren't able to get with food, but you could get with supplements. Taking like too much vitamin D or too much zinc. This little bit of zinc is helpful, but too much or, or too much, um, you know, you know what I'm saying, or too much fish oil or omega-3 fatty acid could be detrimental. You, it's, it's again, getting that, that, that sweet spot, which is usually a, a center spot. But with regard to phytochemicals and antioxidants from colorful plants, we want, to, we want to get a good, a good concentration and a wide variety of both of those things. So therefore eating a lot of colorful food and a lot of green, different types of green vegetables, including green cruciferous and scallion family, the scallion and onion family and the mushroom family. And I have this acronym, G-BOMBS, mm-hmm. which stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. So people have in the back of their mind this concept of kidding all those different kingdoms of anti-cancer food and including the full, that full um, synergistic portfolio that gives the maximum immune function for anti-cancer effects and longevity. So G-bomb. So yes, we're talking here about caloric restriction, but not just pushing yourself till you're too thin. Great. Um... Let's move into that cancer. You mentioned um, food as an anti... Well, actually, uh, we'll get there before we run out of time. But you you mentioned having fruit for dessert. Um, And I'm curious, especially as a a father of toddlers who love sugar, like any other human and most animals (laughs) that I know. Um, So, you know, I'm always conscientious of the fact that, um, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of sugar while their taste buds are evolving and, you know, uh, adapting, um, to this earth. Uh, but at the same time, I, I tell myself I'm, I'm happy because they're also getting all these different phytochemicals and antioxidants and, you know, the, the vitamins and minerals that, that do all the wonderful things in the body that we know. So, what, what is your take for an adult or a child on, on fruit in particular? Should it be monitored? And again, you can, you can clarify that or, or uh, qualify it, maybe better said, for, for those who are looking for weight loss, because I know. But, but you know, just a typical adult who's looking to be that healthy centenarian that you referred to, where, where does fruit fit in? 
you know, it gets back to this concept of we have an unprecedented opportunity in human history to live longer than ever before as a result of the science, but also as a result of modern supermarkets, which have such a wide variety of foods we could eat. And we can do better than blue zones in the variety of foods we can eat because we can eat berries and onions and green vegetables. And having a child, the trick is to get them to eat as much variety of food as possible. Make, some, make them some banana ice cream, but mix some green vegetables in there. You know, make them a loaf, of, you know, a burger, but put grains and mushrooms in the burger with catch, you know, with a help with a healthy red tomato sauce like ketchup on top and make a, you know, try to get variety in our diets, with green, especially with green vegetables. So you can overeat fruit to the point of not getting that variety. But if a child is getting, you know, but we wouldn't really want to restrict the calories in its growing child. So we're letting them, you know, eat fruit and snack on fruit, but we don't want them to live only on fruit. So we don't, you know, so we, again, um, we don't want the diet to be in, unbalanced. And the way a lot of the vegan diets of, of, of today's, um, sometimes in today's, um, you know, the proliferation, proliferation of these vegan diets across the world has been, they've been advocated as being low fat plant-based. And a lot of people have not just taken out the oils, but they've tried to reduce or taken out the nuts and seeds. And that's been a big mistake for the growth of children's bodies, but also as far as the promotion of excellent health for adults, because you absorb the phytochemicals that fight cancer um, 20 to 50 times as much when there's fat with the meal in the form of, especially in the form of nuts and seeds, which are absorbed slowly and don't um, increase appetite like oils do. So we're talking here about a balanced diet and having a wide of as much as possible using a lot of different types of food in the, on the dietary landscape. Uh, you are just teeing me up for the next conversation. So oil, um, I, I know this is something of a lightning round and I apologize for, for jumping around, but these are all the curiosities that came up when my team was talking about what, what should we ask Dr. Furman? So, um, you know, I don't think anyone is confused that oil is not ideal, but um, for those who uh, cook with little olive oil. Um, maybe they use olive oil as a salad dressing. J just how bad is oil? Should we all run away screaming or, or is there a place for a moderate amount of oil in a longevity focused diet? Mm. Um, hmm. I guess, well, let's get to, if we focus on the science right now, we'd have to say that there's no nutritional scientist in the world that would say walnut oil is healthier than walnuts or sesame oil is healthier than sesame seeds. Everybody knows that whole foods with their phyto, with the fibers and lignans and sterols and stanols give you a much greater exposure to anti-cancer material. So the answer is, you know, you have to compare one food or another. And, you know, as you know, I'm trying to advise people on ideal eating, but that doesn't mean that a person who's a you know, an athlete burning a lot of extra calories is going to be, you know, damaging their health significantly with a little bit of oil in their diet if they're already consuming most of their fat from nuts and seeds because they're burning all those extra calories. So if they had a teaspoon of oil a day that wasn't heated, you know, then it wouldn't be so terrible. That's like a guy who works in the Mediterranean countries and works behind a plow all day with an, with an ox and burns, you know, you know, 4,000 calories a day. It's not the same thing as a person working in a computer who has a pot, you know, with extra fat on their body, putting oil on their food. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. 
but you're still diluting the nutritional quality of your diet to the extent that you use oil instead of using the whole food the oil came from. So it's still healthier to eat sesame seeds and flax seeds and chia seeds and walnuts than it is to put any oil that came from those foods. And, I'm, and for my niche and my own personal body, I don't have any oil in my diet because why would I put something in that's not, that's not going to be as good? I might as well eat the walnuts and make the, make the ice cream with a frozen banana, the real vanilla bean powder and, and the walnuts and the macadamia nuts rather than put oil in there. You know, and so I, and I didn't use, and it's the same thing. I, I used real vanilla bean powder. I didn't use vanilla extract or vanilla flavoring. I used real vanilla bean powder. Um, you know, you have one body, why not put the best stuff in it? it you, your taste acclimates to it. You like it, the taste of it more, not less, to have the real whole foods. And we make incredible, I'm very proud of the fact that we've made incredibly delicious recipes to use whole foods instead of using processed foods to make the recipes. You don't need salt and oil and frying things to make them taste good. So the answer is why bother with the oil? Why are you bothering with that? Why don't you just use the, you know, the whole, you know, it's healthier to use the whole food. But then again, I'm not saying a little bit's going to kill you, but keep in mind, there's another problem here. And the other problem is when you refine an oil and you extract it from the original plant, they're using hexane, you know, they're using hexane um, chemicals. They're producing glycidol, glycidol, which is a genotoxic carcinogen, which is residually found in oil. And people who, are, have, who consume fried foods have higher levels of these carcinogens in their body and their tissues. And it's even in, in formulas they give to babies. And you even find some of it in olive oil because they, they, because they extract it. And some of that shows that the extra virgin olive oil is not really extra virgin because there, there's, there's molecules from heated oils in there. And it's so there's a lot of diluting of oil. But in any case, the point is, it's, um, it's not something I can recommend, but then in small amounts, it may not be significant, but, but you certainly don't wanna see or consider oil something you wanna, you wanna see that as something to exclude, not to include. And I don't see any purpose in it because when you cook foods in oil, you're causing, you know, you're causing radical free radicals to form the, the rancidity of the oil and the carcinogenic effect is proportional to the heat that it's the, the temperature of the heat and how long it's being cooked for. Okay. A, a full answer. Thank you. Um, and you've led to, to one final topic that I think all of us care deeply about. Um, and that is because most of us feel really confident in the science around a plant-based diet to prevent or even treat and sometimes reverse heart disease. Um, but I think cancer, if I look at my own friends and family, um, uh, still scares everyone, <laughs> you know, beyond, beyond uh, um, any reasonable uh, definition, because um, it's the one thing that we don't, I think, fully understand as, as much as we might wrap our heads around atherosclerosis and, and the role dietary cholesterol might play and inflammation might play. Right. But, but cancers are just so varied and, and wide ranging in, in cause and location and scope that um, it's difficult to, to become comfortable. You, you've mentioned anti-cancer properties a few different times, carcinogens without asking a, a specific question. I'd, I'd love just to hear your perspective on what can we all do to prevent that that C word that all of us are, are so scared of. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly right. Is that what I'm saying that the, 
the progression of disease to heart disease is a slow progression from childhood to the, to the first appearance of a symptom when you're 60 or 70 years old. It didn't start when you were 50. It started when you were 10 years old. You know, the, the atherosclerosis that clog up the heart. The same thing with cancer. The causes of cancer start in childhood and possibly the exposure to unhealthy foods in childhood is a bigger component of the, of the cancer causation pie than would be exposure to carcinogens later in life. When cells are replicating, they're easily more easily damaged, but it's, it's cumulative damage to the DNA. It's the accumulation of methylation defects and other types of broken DNA crosslinks. And we're, we're saying here that um, the sooner in life you stop the destructive process with the dangerous foods, and that's why I'm such a, people consider what I do to be sometimes radically healthy. Now, I don't want to eat a diet that radically healthy, but considering that they didn't eat healthy the first 50 years of their life, if they want to reverse all those methylation defects and, and cellular damage that cumulatively is going to increase the risk of cancer, they need to do this with a high degree of um, excellence. So I call a nutritarian diet, I sometimes refer to it as nutritional excellence, and we make it fun and enjoyable, but why not free yourself of the fear of heart attacks, strokes, and cancers? Why not go all the way and get the maximum benefit? Because when we were younger, we didn't take as good care of our health because we didn't know all this stuff. So I'm just saying, yes, we have tremendous capacity to reverse disease and reverse cellular defects that if left alone would have created cancer. And that's why a lot of us nutritarians are so enthusiastic about what we do because we're doing everything we can to protect ourselves and not just leaving it to chance. Well, well put. And, and for those worried about um, heart disease, uh, same explanation, maximize uh, whole foods, minimize oil, anything in particular, if you have a family history and heart disease that, that you encourage folks to, to look at, or is it just a panacea? Well, it's kind of a panacea, but don't forget, I'm not ignoring the fact that body fat spews out free radicals and makes you insulin resistant. And you can, unless, and people are overweight, if they're not dropping weight, I usually consider a nutritarian to be a person at their ideal weight or, or at least moving towards their ideal weight with, a, with a, losing approximately two pounds a week or more. We don't want to excessively lose weight, but we, we want to make sure they're eating right so their weight is dropping till they get to their ideal weight. We're talking here about you know, a male being below 15% body fat and females below 25% body fat. And my body fat's probably at 68 is probably close to 10 or 11%. So we know I'm being lenient with that 15%. I'm not being too aggressive there, but I'm saying it's a combination of eating right and also be trying to be both physically fit and control your amount of food you're eating so you don't go to bed at night on a full stomach. So most of your calories are consumed earlier in the day so you can fully rest and repair at night without digesting food all night long. That's the other aspect. Um, if, if we may, I want to be respectful of time, but um, I'd love to probe a little deeper into that. I think science is one of those, uh, sorry, uh, sleep is one of those in vogue topics today that, that we are starting to learn more around the science. I could have told you 20 years ago that you sleep better on an empty stomach. <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, if you could elaborate a little bit, why, why do you want to go to sleep on an empty stomach? 
Yeah, I, I know. This is like new science that's been more, you know, you know how intermittent fasting is vogue. People are saying they're trying to eat in a narrow window, but the real benefits occur because the body is removing and restoring free radicals in the brain and more healing and detoxification occurs when you're not digesting food. And so sleep combines the, the body's resting and rejuvenation effect of uh, processing and removing, lowering free radicals in the body and in the brain, and also repairing and, de repairing and detoxifying at the same time. So we wanna give the restorative ability of sleep the most power we can give it. We sleep in a dark room. We don't have the TV on or the lights on while we're sleeping. And of course, we're trying to eat dinner early enough and finish our calories for the day and make dinner light enough so you don't feel you still have a heavy meal in your stomach when you go to bed at night. You want to really feel like you've like you finished digestion. And that's the really, so like skipping breakfast is not as beneficial as eating an earlier and lighter dinner. Because if you're eating, skipping breakfast, eating a late, a late meal, late in, the after, late in the evening and going to bed in a full stomach, it's better you, you ate a breakfast and, and ate a lighter or earlier dinner. So it's the timing of the meals that's getting more, that's more critically important here and more evidence is, is um, demonstrating that this is an important factor. Thanks for that. And that obviously um, kind of correlates to time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Um, do you practice one or both? Or <laughs> depends on what you define nowadays with all these definitions, but are, are you a proponent of some form of fasting? You know, when I'm dealing with overweight people, I, tr I don't fast them or even intermittent fast too aggressively because if you push them too far in that direction, then they don't get the pattern of behavior that they have to develop to develop to really stick to this lifestyle and keep it consistent week to week, month to month, you know, day to day, meal to meal to keep getting, keeping themselves consistently at the right weight and moving in that direction. So we want to yo-yo to one extreme and then bounce back to the other extreme and gain weight back and lose it. So we're doing it, but with, with just being cautious, it's much better to just think about trying to not overeat at dinner, finish eating dinner at five o'clock or four 30, you know, stop eating four hours before you go to bed try to make gauge your calories at dinner. So you don't feel like you got too full at dinner. So you feel like you're finished. Um, you finished digesting for the day well before sleep time. So instead of using the concept of, you know, going too far in one direction, we're just trying to do that moderately as well. So people can live with it consistently. My concern is if you do move too radically in one direction, you'll won't be sustainable and sustaining the behavior. That's critical here. You follow me? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, I'm sure as as a practicing physician, uh, compliance is one of your biggest hurdles, right? You can right, right. You can tell folks uh, all day what the science says, but um, implementing in practice, that's where we all struggle. Um, so we're about out of time, but I want to at least leave a few minutes to talk about your your latest book, Eat for Life. Um, Tell us what, what inspired you, again, as, as you're approaching the eighth decade of your life and what, fifth decade <laughs> talking about nutritional excellence, it seems. Um, what, what inspired Don't make me you older than I am. I'm not even, I'm only 68. Look, it's, it's impressive. <laughs> it's impressive. No, you're eight. Yeah, you're entering into your eighth decade, isn't it? No, oh, really? Seventh. Am I? 
I'm not sure. I think it's one of those things where you started you started zero, right? Your first decade. Anyway, the point is, is you've been doing this for quite a quite a long while, um, and I mean that in in the best of ways, um, with with a true fondness and appreciation for the work you've done over these decades. Um, but nonetheless, you've been at this a long time. What inspired you to write your? Is this the eleventh? With this, it's be my twelfth book. The twelfth. Wow, book. twelve yeah. books. Um. You know, I'm always, I, I guess what inspires me is more research. Like when I did Eat to Live, I had all this research I collected on kids and cancer that I wrote Disease Proof Your Child next, you know what I mean? Because I was collecting the research for Eat to Live. I had a whole bunch, a whole carton of research articles that I wanted could put a book together about children on. And then when I wrote, you know, so it's all about, I, I did research for, you know, my book, Super Immunity, and I saw, well, there's so much information about um the dangers of food addiction and fast food. And as I wrote fast food genocide, and I just, you know, so I research it and I let the research direct me where I want to go. And of course my latest book, Eat for Life, is because all these years of transforming the lives of people with multiple sclerosis and advanced heart disease and psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis and eczema and, and all these people recovering, their Ill, recovering from such serious illnesses and all the um, cumulative data of research that I've produced, but others have produced around the world to show that this is not alternative medicine. This is not, this is good medicine. This is progressive medicine. This is where medicine should have gone and is going in that direction. This is not something that should be seen as, as being far out and radical. It's where people really have to, that everybody in America has, in the world at large, has to embrace this information. And I wanted to make this my final book to be um, very comprehensive and, and demonstrate that this new nutritional science is not should not be controversial because the the preponderance of evidence all ports all points in the same direction well i am looking forward to picking up a copy and um i'll just say again um thank you for for the work that you continue to do it's inspiring and uh and life-changing for so many of us myself personally included as i as i mentioned um well, that's my, people... that's my thrill of my, the fun of my life too, was watching people get well and, and, and being a motivator and you know, being part of their change. And that's why my wife and I have this um, eat to live retreat in San Diego, where people actually come and stay with us two to three months, you know, and get when to get well. Cause as you know, some people are so food addicted or so have so many issues they make, they can't do this on their own. They need extra help. So we have a lot of fun and um, passion in having that and doing that as well and helping people. Yeah, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing, um, and you've been on an amazing journey. Final question: If you can leave our audience with some message, imagine it's a uh, a metaphorical billboard on a highway of a a, a well um, traveled path. Uh, what what's that one phrase that you want to get out into the world or or idea? Here it is. You ready? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's make salad the main dish. <laughs> Feels like that should be printed on a red hat. No, yeah. make make salads great again. Um, that make salads great again. That's a good one. I don't know <laughs> anything to do with Trump. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So I was going to say maybe, similar maybe, to that. Maybe I shouldn't go there. <laughs> Maybe too polarizing. Exactly. Yeah, well, right. suffice it to say that um, I think that's an awesome 
uh, mission and because we want people to have at least one big salad a day, which have raw vegetables, which they chew very well. And if everybody did that in the modern world, that would change healthcare across the world too. And and just found out today, I think I just found out that New York City just changed its whole the whole hospital system in New York to adopt lifestyle medicine and plant based diets to change the health of New Yorkers across the whole hospital system in New York. It's like amazing. I never wow. thought this would happen in my lifetime, but we're starting to get more, more interest in this way of keeping people healthy and, and having them get healthy. Yeah. Eric Adams at work behind the scenes. I'm, I'm yep. sure. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, I, I, I sure hope we can have you back um, because there are so many of these topics that we've only scratched the surface on. And I think that's one of the nice things about our um, podcast. We move quickly and and cover a breadth of information um all uh, you know all in an hour um but some of these are deserving of a much deeper dive so i I welcome the opportunity for our our next conversation again uh, thank you for for the work you do and you know it's had such an impact on my life personally i'm sure many of the folks in our our audience today would say the same. So thank you for for all the work in general and for joining us today to share a little bit more of your wisdom. My pleasure and look forward to doing it again sometime.